Every human being has creativity within, but not everyone feels the call to be an artist. An artist is someone who answers the call to create again and again. And there's beauty and value in that because if to be human is to be creative, who better to learn about creativity than from working artists? I'm your host, Mandy Harmon, a film director, creative marketer, and sometimes with my teeth gritted, consider myself an artist. This is not an interview podcast. Artbreakers is a conversation podcast. Conversing with me in Artbreakers episodes are mostly full-time creative artists of all kinds. Artbreakers aims to share with you the kind of vulnerability that deepens your creative work in meaningful ways, whether or not you identify as an artist. In this episode, I chat with Brian Fugel, an accomplished filmmaker and VFX artist working on short films, documentaries, and some music videos you've likely seen, from Imagine Dragons, The Killers, and Billie Eilish. Him and I also go way back. He was one of my first filmmaking mentors. We met some years ago on my first commercial video campaign when I got a lucky break at a company I was working at, and I hired Brian to co-direct and co-produce with me. And I'm so glad I did because I was able to learn from someone much, much better than I was. And... Honestly, a co-directing partnership can be disastrous with the wrong person, but Brian and I were really able to collaborate. It was awesome. The first 10 to 15 minutes of this episode is some of Brian's history, but then we get to the heart of it all. The backstory behind his personal film called The Long Haul, about a religious, closeted gay father and his teenage son trying to understand it all. Rooted in a true story, Brian's artistic vulnerability and work ethic shines in his art and career, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome Thanks for to... inviting me. This is fun. Oh, it's super fun. Brian and I are old friends. We go way back. He's one of my early mentors. Um, honestly, I wouldn't be where I was if I hadn't met Brian. I wouldn't have got you to Harbor Brothers and, you know, have you burn out. And... <laughs> I wouldn't have experienced burnout without Brian, who taught me You're what welcome. burnout was like. <laughs> is that a reoccurring theme throughout your career? Is well, um, I mean, kind of being a workaholic, I guess, is kind of inherent in the career, especially being freelance. Yeah, of course. Uh, you have to say yes to more than you probably would, I think. Uh, being on a nine to five thing where you just clock in, clock out, that's less pressure to get the paycheck, you know, and right. get stuff done. And so you end up taking on a lot more than you can probably handle sometimes. And so it's always like a juggling act and, and making things work out and meeting your deadlines. Well, okay, then let's go way back to what made this workaholic artist <laughs> who he <Yeah>. is. <laughs> um, you're, you're from California, right? I'm actually from Pleasant Grove, but I lived in L.A. for all of my college years. So when I was 21, I moved down there, and then I was there for about nine years. I did way too much school, as I tell yeah. people. In film? In film, yeah. I did, a, I did a certificate in TV in my community college down there in Pasadena. And then I always wanted to um, go to college and even get a master's degree all the way from the very beginning because you know something my dad I guess ingrained in me is like get your master's degree so my parents and I all kind of went to college at the same time they didn't go to college until they were older oh that's really nice and so it was cool but then it's like they graduated right before me and so whenever you got those benefits of like first person in your family to go to college, I'm like, oh, so close. Oh, <laughs> man, they should have just delayed I know, like two right? months, guys. Come on. Seriously. But no, it was, it was cool. But um, he was always just like stressing the importance of going to school. And he wished that he would have finished school, but he didn't. And then, you know, like I said, he just went, he went to school the same time I did. What, so, did, what do you think of you going to school in the arts? Um, he was supportive of it. I don't remember him ever like trying to talk me out of it, which is probably a good thing, probably something that doesn't happen in some families, you know? They are more encouraged to do like engineering or, you know, be a doctor or whatever, you know? Um, I thought I was gonna be a doctor. I was, I was pretty dead set on being an anesthesiologist when I was a kid. Really? And then when I was in high school, I took an anatomy class that was like a concurrent enrollment thing with the, with the university. And uh, my anatomy class on the first test, I was just like, nope, this isn't what I wanna do. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, all the memorization and all that. I don't have a very good memory. I'm like, dang, this is not my thing. Mm -hmm. I, was, I like the idea of it. And it turns out I like what I liked about it was kind of what I'm doing now is the freelance life and being flexible and like setting your own hours, getting paid a lot. That's the hope eventually, you know, uh, for what I'm doing. But like getting decent pay and setting your own hours and just having that flexibility was very appealing to me. 
And so that's why I, if I were to be a doctor, I wanted to be an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. And your parents weren't disappointed by the career change? <laughs> You're like, mm -hmm. oh, anesthesiologist, filmmaker. <laughs> well, <laughs> if anybody him. would have been, it would have been my dad. Because that, my dad's side of the family comes from like a working class mm -hmm. um, family. Fugal construction is a big thing here in Utah, um, especially in Utah County. So like a family business, everybody's been working in construction and, and like very blue collar. But my mom's side of the family, I mean my uncle, he made the Waikiki, he made the um, Duke statue out on Waikiki Beach, you know, that people go and they put oh, their lay so on it, cool. you know. Um, and so like art has always been something that's very big in my mom's side of the family and something that's never been discouraged and always been encouraged. And so, um, and my brother has, you know, like six years ahead of me, he's always been an actor, filmmaker, you know, he's kind of paved the way for making this very normal you know, for, for me as a career choice. And my parents seeing his success and going in that direction, you know, they didn't discourage me from doing, trying to do the same thing. Did you and your brother make films together as a kid? No, actually. He was just enough older than me where we didn't really interact much as like friends as kids, you know? He was, he was very much a, a big brother who was just out of reach in terms of like doing friend stuff. You know, right? But he was still like somebody I looked up to, and some I saw him like 16 years old. He was a host of one of these Saturday morning like science shows uh, that was done locally for the public broadcast. And then he got a job working as a cameraman before he was even 18. You know, for KSL. I'm like, whoa, he's like making it happen. It's not just something you see in the movies. It's like not possible. You know, it feels like a pipe dream for most people. But then he was showing me at a very early age that it's possible to make a career out of it even as young as he was and like so I was in middle school and he was at universe at the university of, it was called UVSC at the time it's now called USU no UVU uh, Utah Valley University and he was taking he was doing some courses there and I would go and use his computer and I would be on premiere editing my project that I would inevitably like convince my teachers to let me do a video project instead of whatever else I had to do for right. my project. Right, forget the essay, video yeah. project, yeah. please. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a video essay about, you know, there you go. a World War II vet, and so that was my project instead. And I was, you know, over there on his computer, editing all night long, you know, ever since I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. So did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker early on? Or, or you know, you went from anesthesiologist to filmmaker. How did that happen? <laughs> like, what, what was the, the turning point for you? Uh... I think probably seeing my brother do film stuff was was when I realized that if it's possible, that's really what I want to be doing. Because, and maybe this was subconscious at the time, but it's just a, a great balance between the arts and some of the other skill sets that I guess I just kind of naturally have with my personality. More of an organizational kind of a person, you know? I've always been kind of like torn between, like I said, my dad's side of the family, which is very blue collar, very like work, work, work. Um, and my mom's art side, and so I've always been kind of stuck in the middle um, in a, a lot of ways throughout my whole life, really. If, if I were ever to write a book, it would be probably called like The Middleman or something because uh -huh. I'm always in the middle between two worlds, and that's just been in pretty much everything I've ever encountered. I'm always kind of in the middle somewhere. And, and, I'm and never are you a middle the, kid too? I am. There you go. I'm a middle child. There you go. Yeah, I'm never on any of the extremes, and so it's like political arguments with me are kind of boring because I'm never going to get hyped up over one side or the other, you know. You take the centrist path yeah, every time. I'm a time. centrist, I'm a moderate, like whatever you can think of, I'm usually down, right down the middle somewhere. Uh-huh, that's fantastic. Uh, did that make you very diplomatic? Um, I think I was always a peacekeeper, maybe that was part of the middle child thing, I don't know, but at the same time middle ch children are kind of like more attention seeking, which wasn't really my thing, but maybe in my own ways with my films I have been, mm. you know. Um, I was never like an extrovert in, in any sense. Um, I've always been kind of an introvert, but I guess maybe my way of putting myself out there and getting attention is through is through my films. So in your childhood, you had, it sounds like it was pretty open to explore. You were able to play around. Mm -hmm. um, what, was, what was hard about that at all? Was there anything hard about being creative? Well, I never really considered myself very creative. Um, and except for when I was in fourth grade, my teacher gave everybody kind of like an award at the end of the year. And the award that she decided to give me was most creative boy. And I was just like, oh, somebody thinks I'm creative? That's kind of cool, you know? And 
my mom has always been the type of person, kind of typical for 90s kids and kind of millennials. One of the criticisms is like, your, our parents tell, told us we could do whatever we wanted to do yeah. with our life. The gifted child syndrome, right? We're I all guess. gifted. Yeah. We're all you special. You can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Yep. Whatever you put your mind to. Which I took that to heart. And so I said, well, what if I, what I want to do is this then. And I never really let things deter me from that. Was that for better or worse? Um, I think maybe in some instances there might have been something out there that my personality and my... Um, I don't know, just something that I might have taken to more naturally. I, it makes me think of like in China, they have you take tests mm -hmm. and see what you're good at and then they put you in that thing so that you're the best service to the community, you know? And we don't really do that here. We just do whatever we want, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe you land in something, you really fight for something that's just against, it's an uphill battle compared to other people that are more naturally fit to do that thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so... Some parts of filmmaking have been kind of that uphill battle for me, uh, being kind of the introverted, like, organizational person. Sometimes I lean that way a little bit more than the art side, and so I can't dive as deep into the arts and, like, the abstract that maybe some other people have that stronger on the creative side um, in some aspects. But I think having a balance has also helped to make me unique in other ways that's been, I've been able to kind of carve uh, a niche out for myself using those mm -hmm. skills. Uh, you're primarily known for being a technical filmmaker, right? Mm -hmm. VFX, production. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have directed some of your own films, mm -hmm. uh, The Long Haul, Love in the Time of Quarantine. Which other ones am I blanking um, out I just on barely right finished one called Widow's Peak. That's right. Which That's is right. just an extremely opposite of The Long Haul. It's just pure popcorn, like turn your brain off and enjoy this. It's a story about um, hikers. Uh, a guy who goes hiking with people he finds out are cannibals. So, <laughs> is that a popcorn flick? I don't know if it's, that's light viewing. <laughs> no, it's, it's the funny thing is, yeah. is it's like you, it's, I say cannibals and it sounds gruesome, but it's actually pretty pretty uh -huh. tame. Pretty it's mild. like it's probably a middle again, middle PG thirteen. You know, it's not even a hard PG thirteen. Right, right. Oh, that sounds fun. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I am interested in the long haul because yeah. that's uh, that, that's one of my favorite films that you've done because I love the heart and the the. It's, it obviously comes from a very personal place. Would you mind mm -hmm. sharing a little bit what that's about? Yeah, um, the best way I've been able to describe that is it's kind of 20 years of my life packed into 20 minutes um, that take place over a weekend uh, trip that a son takes with his father. A strange father recently divorced and then the father has come, in out, come out as gay. Mm -hmm. and and so he's the, a trucker too, right? He's a trucker, it's yeah. kind of a bit of a road movie. Yep. A little bit, yeah. So Long Haul is the play on like a Long Haul Trucker. In reality, my dad was a short-haul trucker, but that doesn't sound as good as a title. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> short-haul trucker. The short-haul. We're <laughs> not in it as for good the short-haul. No, it's not like, as good. You're not as committed you know, to the relationship yeah. if it's just for the short-haul. Plus you know? 20 years. That is a long haul. Yeah, yeah. It's a long journey that I've come, come on, and, and, and it's still kind of, I'm still in the process of it. Um, but I, So it's about the relationship about me and my dad, and he came out when I was like eight or nine. I made the character uh, in the short film 14 because mm -hmm. teens are a little bit more angsty, you know. Right. And kids, you know, like what happened with me, at first when my dad came out after my parents got divorced, I still didn't really know how to process what that even meant, you know. Mm -hmm. My parents sat us down. They're like, so we just want to let you guys know that daddy's gay. And we're like, okay. Can we go play outside now? So yeah, I was actually pretty young when it, when my dad came out, and I didn't start processing it until I was into my teens, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the 90s, people would just call each other gay or fags. It's kind of mm -hmm. strong language nowadays, but it was so common back then. Mm -hmm. And it was never in the sense that, oh, I'm being derogatory towards you calling you a homosexual. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just like a synonym for... Uh, you don't be dumb or don't be... It was the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> we said a lot of words that... Yeah. It didn't oh, hold the same meaning. It didn't hold it the does, same meaning at the same time. Which yeah. is hard to look back on and, and try to understand that, but that's, that's just how it was, I think. And one example in the same realm of, as like fag or gay is queer. Mm -hmm. That was also something, smear the queer. We would play smear the queer as a kid. 
Have you ever heard of that? I don't think so. Okay, so I think I was too sheltered. What was this? It's where you get together with all of your friends and there's one football or basketball or something. There's something that represents who the person is that you're trying to get. It's kind of like a, a take on King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. You're trying to overtake the hill and be the king. Right, right. right. So whoever has the ball, you're the queer. <laughs> whoever has the ball, you have to go and tackle oh, them no. and take the ball from them and then you, became, you become the person that everybody tries to get. Uh-huh. And it was called Smear the Queer. Wow, that's and, wild. What did your dad think about that? And about that culture, how did how did that affect him? I mean, I mean, he grew up in the same kind of culture. He grew up in the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, I mean, have you guys had that conversation? Like, Dad, you came out as gay when uh-huh. I was eight or nine. Yeah, I'm um, coming back to the film. That was the best uh, therapy, I think, for me, mm-hmm. being kind of like the peacekeeper, non-rebellious type, like. I didn't really do anything besides like maybe going egging, you know, yeah. or keeping the neighbor's houses. <laughs> and smear the queer. <laughs> and I, I guess smear the queer is, sounds a lot worse than it really was. But, <laughs> that it does sound horrible. Um, well, let me finish that, that thought real quick because the queer now has become an academic term. Mm-hmm. When I was in school then at Cal State Long Beach, um, I took some courses from queer studies. Mm. And so it's kind of weird how it evolved from when I was a kid to when I was in college, yeah. that queer became an academic term um, that is acceptable in those contexts. Do you think you would have had the same interest in that had you not known someone who was gay or had your dad not come out? Or probably was not. That, probably not? Yeah. yeah. I see, I, I, you know, I can relate to and I can empathize with a lot of people who have no experience with homosexuality and raised in the 90s or like in my age group that are, you know, still having a hard time with mm-hmm. like LGBTQ stuff because I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. It's like, why do I still feel uncomfortable after everything that I've gone through with my dad and like making the movie and learning to empathize and and um, um, and sympathize with with the gay community or LGBTQ community? Why do I still feel uncomfortable? Like my wife said the other day, she goes to the University of Utah, and she's like, I'm gonna get a University of Utah shirt. I was thinking of getting like a rainbow shirt. Would you wear that? And I was just like, I just get that little bit of like a still a little bit of oh, a yeah. discomfort, mm. you know? Where do you think that comes from? It's amazing that you're able to recognize that in yourself. That, yeah. That's fascinating. That's, that's right. fantastic. As much as I love and support my dad and everything, it's just like, yeah. and I, f- I think I figured it out that like when we were kids in the 90s and even into the th- 2000s, the rainbow flag was protest and mm. it was we're here, we're queer, get used to it. You know, and that was like always a thing that, that was chanted. It was a little bit more in your face. Mm-hmm. You know, I think nowadays. And did that rub you the wrong way at the time? You just didn't. I just didn't or want is it to the be the culture a, that you were in, or yeah, what I do you mean, think contributed to this? My upbringing was in a very kind of sheltered community, and so the fact that my dad was gay it was something I never talked about mm-hmm. with all my friends and family because well, my family knew about it. My my friends didn't. Not even my best friends. Like not until I was like in high school, I would tell my best friends that my dad was gay. Oh, really? Yeah. They just knew that your parents were divorced. Yeah. My okay. dad lives in California. My parents are divorced. Mm-hmm. I see my dad every now and then, you know. That, that, it definitely did affect you then. Was it like kind of secretive or was, were you embarrassed? It's more of just the taboo. More just the taboo. I didn't yeah. want the attention yeah. of people, oh, your dad's gay? You know, what does that mean for you? Kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, Especially at an immature age. Any of negative attention that that could have brought to myself, I just tried to avoid it. Yeah. And so all of those things kind of contributed to me just trying to not attribute or like associate myself with the rainbow flag, I guess, you know, because mm-hmm. that represent whoever was waving the rainbow flag, that meant that they were gay. And nowadays it's as allies are, are waving that flag too. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so, so it's not something that I've really gotten used to yet. I've always just uh, tried, it's just been so taboo my whole life. Yeah. And something I've tried to avoid that it's still hard for me to right. wear a rainbow flag shirt, you know, even you though I love my dad. You mentioned that your brother served an LDS mission, mm-hmm. LDS standing for Latter-day Saints. Uh-huh. So you grew up religious. Uh-huh. Um, and in that, in the religious community, homosexuality is not normally accepted mm-hmm. um, most of the time, particularly in the Mormon faith, mm-hmm. right? How do, do you think that that had a large part to play? Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Like your community, your neighborhood, everybody but maybe one household in your neighborhood is your congregation. Yeah. You know, within, in my neighborhood, it was like three blocks. Three, three small residential, like suburban blocks was one congregation. And so we saw each other in church and outside of church all the time. Mm-hmm. 
So small communities like that, it's almost like living in a small town, even if the town isn't necessarily that small, you know? Right. Everybody knows everything about everybody. So I think being, deciding to, you know, come out as gay and um, placing himself in the position of being an other, mm -hmm. as they say in queer studies, you know, you become an other. Um, and, uh, or maybe you always feel othered, but you finally are more open about right. who, yeah. who you authentically are. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that definitely played a role into it. And I didn't want to be another. You know, I'm like, yeah. I'm straight. You know, mm -hmm. um, I like don't... I want to be a cisgender man who's accepted easily. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I'm like, I feel bad for people. You know, who are in those communities as a gay person or LGBTQ person yeah. because that's just one more social challenge that they have to navigate. Uh, in life, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. What did your dad think of your film, The Long Haul? Oh my gosh, I was so terrified. Oh yeah. When I wrote it, I wrote it and I had him read it first. I'm like, I'm not going to make this unless my dad is okay with it, you know. And then signs off, gives his thumbs up. His approval, yeah. So I wrote it as, a, as an exercise. I kind of workshopped it actually through my master's program at Art Center um, in Pasadena. And I had a really great mentor there. Her name is Victoria Hochberg. She's actually one of the f pioneer film, uh, female filmmakers mm -hmm. um, uh, back as far as like, I think I want to say the 70s, maybe just the 80s, but. Awesome, love that. She's great, she's amazing. And so she was very um, uh, supportive of, of me making this. And you know, so I started workshopping it through her classes uh, pretty much every semester that I was there. I was working on it in some form. So you've been working on the script for years. Uh, I had been, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's it's just been in the works. Do you were you waiting for the right time to make it? Did it did did it go through a lot of reiterations? Um, yes, I was waiting for the right time to make it, and I didn't think that that was while I was in school. Um, yeah. I wanted it to be something that was kind of special and that was kind of a showcase on one hand, but at the same time, I didn't want it to be like an exercise that I used to try to do something that I wasn't bringing my A game to it, you know what I mean? So I was even considering waiting until further along in my film career so that I could really bring the best quality I could possibly bring to it. But um, I really, uh, in, in school, in film school, not just in my master's program, but everywhere I've ever you know, done film classes, um, they've always said, write what you know, you know? Mm -hmm. What do you and think about that? I love it. I think that's where a lot, a lot of where my um, film and, and uh, writing and creativity comes from is basing it off of something tangible, something concrete within my own background. This means, though, when we jump to widow speak, I want to know what your experience <laughs> is with cannibalism. Hiking, hiking <laughs> right cannibals. <laughs> yeah, for you sure. Have something you want to complain about? <laughs> this podcast is the perfect place. No I one's know. listening. I know. <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> It, that does, I mean, that still did come from somewhere, like, I was hiking a lot in Los Angeles with mm -hmm. my wife before we had kids. We would hike all the time. And there's a lot of, like, people, the reason that there's cannibals in it is because there's vegetarian in it. And, and one of the exercises... That feels right. You know, say no know. more. It feels right. <laughs> one of the reasons that, one of the exercises or the prompts was, write what you know, but also opposites create drama. Right. You know, so... The more extreme you can get the opposites in your stories, the, the better the conflict is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so those were the two things that I kind of based it around. I'm like, okay, I'm always being, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've never been vegetarian myself, but, you know, and being living in L.A. for nine years, you run into plenty of them. Oh, you know? for sure. Guaranteed. And so I'm like, well, what would be the, you know, funny opposite of a vegetarian? Maybe a cannibal, you know? So th that's how that came about. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. I didn't mean to derail you from the no. long haul. I I, I, kind of, I want to go back to this because this, yeah. I, I still look at this as one of the most like emotional and uh, antithesis of your career so far. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, it's the it's the accumulation of everything that I've experienced and also trained for so far in my life, yeah. up until the time I made it. And it was therapy. You know, uh, maybe maybe I should have done other kinds of therapy, you know, more traditional kinds <laughs> of we therapy. All? <laughs> I think so. I think I agree. at yeah. the same time, I've got the same kind of like, you know, hesitancy to even do therapy because of what maybe the, oh, because of ta similar taboos, maybe taboos. Yeah. Mm. Does that mean that I'm accepting the fact that I'm weak or something as a man or mm. anything like that? You know, I think a lot of men probably avoid therapy f for that reason. Sure. Sure. 
So I find that really interesting. The term toxic masculinity comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, trucking's a very like masculine, mm -hmm. male-dominated yeah. industry. Um, and I know your dad was a short haul trucker, but you know, yeah. it's the long haul started a long haul trucker. Um, and his son, what? So how did your dad react? I, I, want, oh, yeah. I want to go back to this. Let's, what did he let's think? Answer that question, shall we? So after writing it throughout that that process of through film school, then I'm like, okay, I think it's done. I think I could make this, and I would. I, I this is in its in its form that can be made into a film, and I think I'd be ready to do that. But then I said, I I, I couldn't just do this and keep it away from my dad, you know, because we yeah. developed we had a relationship that. Um, I didn't want to just like hide that from him. You know what I mean? Right. And were you guys pretty close at this point too? Yeah. Um, when I first moved down to LA, I was living in his back house. Um, mm -hmm. He helped me transition down there to go to film school. When I first got married too, like that's where I was living. And so he's been very supportive of me mm -hmm. um, in my film career and in just in general. Like even when he was when they were divorced, my parents were divorced and he was living in LA, he would still call every Sunday and then once every month or two he would come up and visit us. And, he was a little Geo Metro, and he'd mm -hmm. drive from L.A. to Utah um, on Friday night and get up here uh, Saturday morning, hang out with us, and then drive back Sunday, you know? So it's like he put forth an effort, and he did a really good job with that. So we had a good relationship, but it was still kind of like some subjects we just didn't talk about, you know? Right. Did he know that you were writing this concept, or did, did you just show him the script when you showed him, and that was his first time being he introduced knew, to it? He knew that on a road trip, actually, we... I was on a road trip with my dad, and I said, and he was driving, and I think I was moving maybe to Utah or maybe moving back. I can't remember, but it was a long road trip. And I said, um, I want to know more about when you were a trucker. And I think at this point I was open enough to like talk to him about being gay and like being a trucker and what kind of like, was there any kind of like an underbelly or just like an underground community of gay truckers and... And he's like, and so he went. He went into all of those details, and I was just kind of taking notes. Is there? Yeah. 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 He was saying like, um, there's certain stops, there's certain cities that you know that you can, you know, guys know Meet where to someone. hook up mm -hmm. and hook up without drawing any attention to themselves, either mm -hmm. one of them, and that kind of stuff, you know. So. Is is there also? Because it's such, at least the way I see it, right, and the way it's depicted on TV, it's. It's often like hyper masculine, masculine right? Mm -hmm. To be a trucker and to be in that industry. Is that, does that also bring a level of homophobia? Like oh, internalized? Sure. I would imagine so. For sure. Like, um, and, and some danger in that. Yeah. Because yeah? you're on the road, you're alone. It's kind of the mob mentality as well. You get a guy who's just like, like very antagonistic mm -hmm. against somebody and then they get their friends together and let's go beat up a guy. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. and so that's kind of what I put in, in long haul as well. One of the things is that, you know, the kid is on this delivery trip with his dad who's a trucker and you hear over the CB radio one of these guys that's kind of an antagonist come over and be like, oh, it's Larry the Ferry. Well, they used to call him the Ferry, like Larry Ferry. My dad's mm -hmm. name's Larry, but they called him, sounds like... Uh, they, they call him the fairy in the in the short film and then they're just like you know homophobic slurs and that kind of stuff and then the dad turns off the radio right as they're saying oh is that you know uh i, I wonder if that means your your son's gay essentially is what they're saying they say oh like father like son you know and so in the in the film they overhear on the radio they, this antagonistic kind of a trucker comes over and and he overhears a conversation between the the, the dad and his friend over the cb and then they come in and, you know, they're laughing at him like, oh, it sounds like Neil and the fairy, you know, and and they're like, oh, I didn't know you, have a, you had a son. How does that work? You know, well, you know what they say, like father, like son. And so he mm -hmm. like turns it off in mid-sentence so that the son, he's trying to protect his son from that, Yeah. you know, um, which is like I felt like I was protected from it. Um, by my parents, by just all the, a lot of the negativity that came that came with it, you know. Yeah. So it sounds like you didn't experience that a lot of it, but you also protected yourself uh -huh. a lot. I mean, yeah. you weren't very open about it. You were very exactly. quiet about it. Kept it kind of on the down low. Yeah. I see. Uh, your dad's reaction to the script. Yeah. So I, I sent him the. I told him after that trip where I kind of picked his brain about being a trucker. 
And <clears throat> after I wrote the script and I felt like it was good enough to send to him, I sent it to him. I think I wasn't even like brave enough to like call him. You know, I just sent him an email. An like, email. <laughs> like, hey, Dad, I have this script. Um, you I hope want it you goes to, read. to a spam inbox. Uh, <laughs> You're like, don't. No, I wanted to read it and get it back to me as soon as possible oh, because I was just dying. It. Rip you know? off the bandaid. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, here it is. Send it. And I just like sit back. I'm like, oh shoot. Okay. I wonder how long it's going to take him to get back to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was like three days later. I was three in agony. Three days. This a, is email. <laughs> I know. It was agony, though, because I just didn't like, oh, man, what was he going to think about that? Because I have right. a scene in there where the dad gets beat up for being gay, like a lot of homophobic stuff. But I wanted to, to get across the point that the perspective is from the son who's like trying to process everything going on around yeah. him. You know? and, and I think you pulled that off really well. I think that that heart and authenticity is there. And you're able to represent all these different sides without vilifying one or the other, except for right. except for those who beat the dad up. I mean, yeah. they're kind of monsters. Yeah. They, they it's are. It's kind of easy to make them the bad guys. It's kind of easy to make them bad. Oh, for sure. But yeah. at the same time, that's a reality. Yeah. And it's a reality he personally faced, it sounds mm -hmm. like, here yeah. and there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I hope it was never as violent as, as I've depicted. That was more of just something to, to drive, to move the story forward quicker. Sure. Yeah. Like I said, I needed to get to a resolution within a weekend trip between a father and a son, whereas it's taken me, it took me like about 20 years worth of like from when it came out to when I was making this to, to um, process, like and go through that therapeutic process of making the short film and coming to terms with the fact that my dad's gay, but I'm still in my religion, I'm still Mormon, and I'm okay with that. It's never yeah. been something that like drove me out of it. So it's just kind of You've like... you able to take the middle part and be content and happy with that. Yeah. That, that's admirable. Living in both worlds and essentially like... When I moved down there, I don't remember when it was, but when Prop 8 was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. I was living with my dad during Prop 8. Yeah. I would go to church on Sunday and they'd be talking about doing these phone rallies to call everybody up and convince them to vote yes on Prop 8. And yeah, I'd go I home and my dad would be like, if you vote yes on Prop 8, I'll disown you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, and he was just outraged by Prop 8 and the, the church's stance on it. People were outraged by the church getting so involved with it politically. Understandable. I'm also enraged by it, but I'll keep yeah. it together for the purpose of this. Yeah. And I'm like, but, you know, they think that they're doing it for this, but right. we think, you know, uh, LGBT community thinks that, you understood that side. I understood where, both where sides, you know. To. I was yeah. always trying to oh, understand gosh. both sides because I kind of had to, you know. Been kind of forced into the middle more than just by choice. Sure, sure. I mean, I guess I could have just been like, no, Dad, I hate you, you know, and then been that kind of a person, but that's just mm -hmm. not who I am. Yeah, no, instead it sounds like it's been pretty even, Kelter. I'm sure there's been ups and downs, but for the most part, you guys have been able to have a healthy relationship, which yeah. is really great. That's it, it is good, and and most of it is just like whenever subjects come up, sometimes I just kind of keep my mouth shut, you know. Right. So maybe that's not the healthy side of it because it's good to like talk through things, but I just you know for the most part avoided conflict just mm -hmm. for the sake of relationships with my family sometimes. But you put it into the script. Uh -huh. You send an email. Three uh -huh. days later, he responds. What does he say? He says, "I love it. This is amazing. I'll do whatever I can to help make it work." So like with whatever contacts I have within the gay community, that you know, any contact that I might have that might help you to get it out there, to get it made, to get it funded, you know, whatever, let me know and, and I'll help you do that. That's really powerful. Yeah. So that was a huge relief to me and then I'm like, okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this thing. And, and it, in a way it was kind of, not to the extent that he came out at all, but it was kind yeah. of me coming out as like owning up to, um, my dad's identity, yeah. you know, because it's something that, that I just like avoided my whole life. So filmmaking in general is uncomfortable. Yeah. It's hard, you know. So hard. And and if you're doing anything that matters, it's going to be even harder, mm -hmm. you know. So Because it's close to the heart. You want it to be good. You want to do right by the story. Mm -hmm. You put immense pressure on yourself. So then, yeah, so just being like kind of a, what they call a Peter Priesthood kid mm -hmm. who went on a mission and has just been doing everything right and going on a... Not that this isn't right, but just it kind of came out of left field for a lot of people that I would be making something like this. Because mm -hmm. before people had seen it, all I could do was tell them what it was about. I said, it's a story about you know, a, son, a, a boy and his dad who's, who's gay. And so it's like, oh, he's making a gay film? Like, mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, how did, how did your religious community react? Um, I mean, uh, it was mainly 
I, I didn't really like seek approval really from the mm -hmm. religious community, but those within my family that, that were in that community, you know, they were supportive of me and they knew my, my dad, you know. Mm -hmm. I tried to branch out to more than just that through some of the LGBT communities here in Utah. Um, but still, it, it came as a surprise. Yeah, like, yeah. It took some Because a lot of people didn't even know yeah. <laughs> that your dad was gay. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so, and not, then, not that that has to be, you know, advertised. Advertised, yeah. yeah or, uh, but I see that for you, I mean, you just accepting it, like, that's just, it, that was you being transparent, mm -hmm. you know, without necessarily needing to make a point, but at the same time express, well, therapeutically through your art. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And having my dad there during the filming of it too was, was, he was really, there on set? Yeah. Which was really great, but it was really hard too. Like the scene when the dad's getting beat up, you know, for being gay. Um, just got emotional. Okay. He was there on set and that probably carried a lot of mixed emotions. Yeah, lots of emotions. And um, the actor who was playing the antagonist, Mace Sorensen, um, he looked like he looked like an animal at the time because he was growing his hair out and his beard out for this other thing that he was acting in. But um, between takes, he would go, <laughs> he would just go over to my dad and give him a hug. And it was really uncomfortable for me to even depict that. Yeah. But <clears throat> one thing that my mom taught me, because she's big into acting as well, for community theaters and stuff like that, and sometimes she plays roles that are like the bad guy, you know, doing bad things, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm like, and so I think at one point there was a conversation about like, should you be doing that? If you're being a good church-going member, should you be playing these roles that are, like, unsavory? And she essentially would say, and I think she even heard this from somebody in the church or something, but, like, as long as you are, as long as the overall message is something, you know, good and that you're, you're showing that those things are bad and you're not glorifying them, you know, that... Um, that it's okay and it's actually a good thing. And I kind of approach this as like the son's character needed to see his dad go through something extreme like that for him to um, have some perspective because teenagers, and he even says it in the film, he's like, I hate you, you know. Some teenagers are like, I wish you were dead. I wish, you know, they say things yeah. that they don't mean, you know. Right. And like... He, he's sitting there watching his dad get beat up. It forces him to think to himself, wow, he actually could die. Do I really want my dad to be dead? You know? Mm -hmm. or, and so forcing him to make that decision on the fly helps him to like, heal, start to heal the relationship with his dad. So yeah, like having my dad on set for that was, was a really big deal. Because in a way, like, I know that it was a fictionalized version of what I went through, like I said, but in a way it was kind of us working through that while we were filming it, you know? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So, do you look at a lot of the art that you do, especially when it comes to a personal place, as therapy? What's, what's that creative process like? Yeah. And cathartic process, it's, yeah. it's both. For me, that was a one that was definitely needed for my life in general up to that point. But then, everything I've done since then, and then even before then for school, like, it's been more about just, I just love the emotion that filmmaking brings, mm -hmm. and a good film makes me feel things, and and I, and I want to just keep making more of that, you know. Yeah. Um, that one was definitely therapeutic. So I think film is very, it can definitely be therapeutic, but that one I think was so far the only one that was therapy for me. Yeah. The other ones were just kind of chasing the emotion and chasing the. The feelings that good films bring to me, I want to I want to create that for other people, mm -hmm. and so the creative process is like you know I have my whatever my nine to five is, 
but pays the bills. And then nowadays, especially lately, I put kids to bed. And then about 9.30 or so, between 9.30 and about 1 or 2 in the morning, I'm doing side projects. Maybe sometimes if I get overwhelmed with freelance projects, I'm still doing work until that late. But um, it's usually working towards doing whatever my latest side project is, which is like a feature film or uh, a short film, Mm -hmm. usually. And uh, just trying to stretch myself, you know, one project at a time. Yeah. What what is your normal creative approach? You you know, get ideas from personal experiences. You write what you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Then, you know, you make it for the screen, so it takes the creative liberties and artistic liberties that you want to. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? What drives you, and how do you approach film as as an artistic endeavor? Mm. It's funny because, you know, you talk about art and being an artist, but I've always kind of always... I've always... um, consider myself more of a collaborator or mm-hmm. and and I guess collaboration can be an art it's funny because even my title is a VFX artist mm-hmm. it's a very technical thing that you do I'm painting with an eraser you know what I mean sure sure <laughs> that, that's that's true actually that's really funny a lot of the stuff that <laughs> I'm doing is eraser. like fixing things or removing things or you know what I mean mm-hmm. making things that were done practically you know removing all of the the strings and you know the puppet strings essentially yeah. you know you know that I mean that's what personally draws me to film is I, I think film as an art form is one of the most complicated ones yeah. because it is collaborative that yeah. you know it, you can't just be you and a paintbrush and your paints and a canvas mm-hmm. and maybe a model you know if, you, if, if, if but that's still a small group right in film you have to have a crew you have to have actors it's just a bigger, more complicated, more layered art form. All, all are valid. This isn't to say one's better than the other. It's just, in my personal biased opinion, mm-hmm. it's just a little extra complicated and yeah. it, because it requires that kind of collaboration. So I think, I think you're exactly right when you say collaboration is, is art in a way. Because, yeah. I mean, that's what film is. You're working with other artists at the top of their game. You're working with a makeup artist, a VFX artist, you know, wardrobe designer, uh, you know, even even the producers and art, yeah, the yeah. cinematographer, the gaffer, all of these elements and these people with their skills bring it all to the table. I think a big part of film is just surrounding yourself with people who know a lot better than you do at something <laughs> else. Yeah, yeah, that's why I've uh, the latest film that I did was so hard for me because it was during quarantine. It's called Love in the Time of Quarantine, and I used it as a challenge to like get myself to do the things that I've been become comfortable handing off to somebody else who's better than me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But, um, so I, that was a more, you were the one-man kind of crew kind of project. I, yeah, the whole crew was one person. It was me. Wow. There was no lights. It was just me and a camera. That's an amazing creative practice. Oh, I think it's a great exercise for people, like, especially if you've been a few years that you haven't had to pick up the camera yourself or, you know, I've been a lot of, producing a lot more. Mm-hmm. And um, so as a producer, you don't have to pick up the tools quite as much anymore. But I used to be a camera operator for a lot of things, you know, when I first got started doing some like behind the scenes stuff for bands and music videos and stuff. What was that like taking the reins again and doing it all? You know, as if you were in film school again, or as if pre-film school, as if you're in middle school again, you know, making a film out of the passion for it. I came, to, I came into it with the same kind of like um, drive, but with a little bit more knowledge as to like, okay, what can and can't I get away with? You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of limitations. Even wearing two hats makes your craft suffer a little bit. So wearing all the hats, it's like, okay, what am I gonna give up? Yeah. And and I decided to make it in black and white because I didn't want to have to worry about art design, art decoration, colors, you know. I've become very aware of colors working a lot in commercial work, you know. It's like if you have bad design, in, especially with colors, then it can distract from the story. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd learned enough in film school, you would hope at least, doing seven years of film school, getting a master's, uh, MFA, that I would know how to do some basic lighting, you know? So I shot mainly in the evenings when the sun was behind the the subjects, and so it it had some beauty kind of built in to it, Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't have to worry about... A little more dreamy, just naturally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the way that I handled the lighting and gaffing and that side of things is I would just choose times of day that it would be a little bit um, more beautiful naturally. Yeah. I mean, your your creativity was thriving within the limitations that you had. Yeah. Yeah, and that's been always, like, I've really loved getting limitations as much as I hated it at first I wish that I had a million dollars to make my short film Mm -hmm. and I got as much money as I could to make it which was still too much you know for a short film because they don't make money really 
but I had like I ended up making it for like thirty thousand um, dollars, and that was because some of the pieces I didn't quite have the contacts yet to pull favors, you know. So I had to pay for some stuff. But for for doing my other short film as a as like a one man crew, it was really good to take that knowledge that I'd learned over all of those years mm-hmm. and um, live within those limits and not um, not figure things out the hard way like I had when I was a student. You're like, oh, let's just shoot it and then we'll fix it in post, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, we'll I, was a, I was a VFX artist. I know what you can and can't fix in post very well. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think it was able to come together, all things considered, being a one-man crew. I think it turned out pretty yeah, cool. I think it turned out great. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't have guessed that it was just you. Yeah. I wouldn't. It, it seemed like a lot more went into that. So that I find that really inspiring, particularly during COVID when a yeah. lot of artists, a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people were fatigued, emotionally mm-hmm. exhausted. You know, a lot of people have different experiences this past year. Some people had an awakening and mm-hmm. they were like, wow, like, oh, this is who I am or this is what I want to pursue. And other people were just trying to put food on the table. You yeah. know, it, it, was, it, it was a crazy year. But for you, you were able to make something. And I think yeah. that that's, that's really neat. On the one hand, I, I wished that I could have forced myself to have a pause. Like a lot of people had a pause. Mm-hmm. And they had some time for reflection. And I ended up just spreading myself more thin than I normally do. Oh, it was like, <laughs> really? Especially with all of the people pausing production work and focusing more on post-production work, I oh, you got all a of a sudden of got a lot of work for VFX work. And... And on top of that, I decided to make a short film. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we're, everybody else is in lockdown and I'm going crazy, you know, running mm-hmm. back and forth up to Salt Lake every evening to get a couple more shots for my short film, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so part of your creative process is working on a lot of projects at once. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I guess so. Do you think that that helps keep you going? I mean, I know uh, Del Toro actually uh-huh. writes about this. I've had this beautiful illustrated book with all of his notebooks from like writing Pan's Labyrinth. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen his behind the scenes stuff, but it's beautiful to look, watch his process. But in one of the interviews, he says, you know, I always have at least five projects in the worst, uh, in, in the works because then at least one of them gets done. Yeah. Um, do you feel similarly along those lines? Do you think that stretching yourself thin actually helps you? In the end, or yeah. there's probably a balance to it. I think I think I'm right in line with what he said because, what, but the thing is, and I don't know if this is the same for him or not. The thing that gets one of those five things done for me is just the guilt of not finishing any of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, part of my process is to use guilt and turn it from a negative thing into a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I I do these short films and I get a lot of volunteers, and that puts the pressure on me to finish it because. I don't want their effort to be in vain, mm-hmm. and I want I want them to have something to show for their yeah. volunteering their time for my film. You know what I mean? Right. Especially when you work with collaborators that you you know respect their work, you mm-hmm. you know who they are, you're friends with them. Right. Yeah. You want it to you want it to be finished. Of course. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. And so with this Widow's Peak one that I made, I shot it over a, almost a year and a half ago, and then I made the quarantine short film after that one and finished it before it. And so now I feel even worse because I haven't finished <laughs> the one that I shot before the quarantine one. But that one was just so much smaller of a scale, you know, and like less yeah. lower risk, I think. That, um, but yeah, I've, I've, that's one thing that's kind of a common thing for me, too, is to I'm very ambitious and then I'm, I'm very kind of guilt driven. OK. And so I've, turned, I've tried not to make it a negative thing and keep it a positive thing and use it to create positive. How does how does that motivate you rather than paralyze you? You know, because sometimes, uh, Mm. uh, let me expand on this. Brene Brown, she talks a lot about the difference between shame and guilt. And this Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite differentiators. Shame, you know, paralyzes you, makes you feel regret. Like, oh, I'm the worst. I will never, you know, you just internalize it and crumple up into a ball and you can't move. And that's awful, right? Mm -hmm. But guilt can be healthy and be like, oh, I'm doing something that's not aligning with my values. Mm. I can use this as motivation to fix it or take Mm -hmm. responsibility. Um... How does guilt motivate you in your creative process Rather and not give way to shame? shame? Yeah. yeah. How, does, how does that work for you? Um, I think the thing that saves me from it becoming shame is that I've spent so much time studying the craft that I feel like I can back it up. So I never take on anything that I don't feel like comfortable doing and, caring, and following through to the end. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... A lot of people are more talk than they are action. 
And so they'll talk a good game, they'll get started on something, and then they'll like, you know, people that do Ponzi schemes. You're always just trying to hurry and like make the next Ponzi scheme so to help pay for the ones, you know, covering your lies right, kind of right. a thing, you know what I mean? And I've always just been terrified by the possibility of ever being in a position where I wouldn't feel confident doing something myself. Mm -hmm. That's why my brother, who's a very, just very uh, right-brained, right-brained is creative? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's debunked anyways, but as a metaphor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a very creative uh, type and very ex more like creative eccentric, like my uncle who did the statue as a sculptor. And my brother was just like, no, I'm going to just, I'm not going to do film school. I'm just going to go make a movie. Mm -hmm. And so, like, his first project well, after... good on him. Yeah. Just do it. There's so many different paths, right. I think. But, yeah, sorry, keep going. And so I just don't function that way, and mm -hmm. I feel... You th sound like you thrive within the structure of yes. school and the, and the limitations, yes. right? Like, you uh -huh. have to put these... You understand how you work. You have to put these on yourself, so then you finish the work that needs to get done and thrive within it. I have to look it up, because one of your questions prompted me. It's um, I, my personality type is a ISTJ, mm -hmm. which is called um, the the inspector mm -hmm. or like the detective and one of the qualities is that I work really well within structure mm -hmm. and I want to I'm still kind of an introvert and this it even says it's like me to a T you're kind of an introvert but you want to be a part you don't you're not alone you want to be a part of things and help people make things happen yeah I you're mean, just as, happy to be here <laughs> as a creative producer with the stuff that yeah. we worked on together you know it's like I'm there to make people like you the director look as good as possible have you had to learn how to say no a lot because of that guilt, like, did it ever turn oh, into like yeah. people pleasing? It's I funny. mean, I don't want to, you know, stereotypes of middle children and whatnot. <laughs> I'm not trying to therapize you. Uh -huh. um, but was that ever like? I just see that if you're guilt motivated uh -huh. or structure motivated, if you're not in, you know, a place of growth, if you're not in a healthy place, you know, our biggest strengths can sometimes be our biggest weaknesses. Yeah. Um, so, what's the flip side of that for you? O now overworking, I know maybe? I know too much. You know too much. Yeah. So that I can, it's, it is hard for me to say no to things that I know I can't do. Mm. But one thing that I've forced myself to do is to limit my, my thing to my, what I advertise myself for, what I market myself for, to three things. I used to just want to know how to do everything, mm. but then there's only so much time in the day. You can't get really good at anything if you're doing everything. So I said, okay, what three things could I limit myself to? And one of them is kind of like two smushed together, but it's directing, VFX, and um, producing, or like AD. I do AD work too, but it's all production management, right? And so I I limit myself to only doing one of those three things at any time, but with all the and knowledge. And you make your brand, you know, mm -hmm. your art and your portfolio known for that work too. Yeah, especially the directing and VFX thing. Uh, well, actually, no, even producing in VFX, I kind of made a name for myself as like a producer who could do VFX, and so we could really up the game. When the producer knows VFX, you can you really know what you can and can't do. Yeah, and you're you can, uniquely fitted for a lot of different projects. You can work within smaller budgets and pull a lot more out of smaller budgets, you know? Um, so yeah, I had to limit myself to that, but as I, as I make a name for myself in each one of those things, inevitably, over time, the longer you do something... Uh, the longer you do what you love, inevitably somebody's going to start paying you to do it. I, I've mm -hmm. always kind of lived by that, you know? So I love these three things, and I start doing them as well as possible, and I want to make sure the word of mouth gets out there that I do these things. But then people start mm -hmm. making those calls and start hitting you up for things, and it becomes more than you can handle. Yeah. So how um, do you define success then? Because you've worked on big projects, you've worked on small projects, you've worked on... You know, a Billie Eilish music video, mm -hmm. you know, imagine these are big names. Imagine, imagine Dragons, Dragons. Vi uh, video that you produced and directed. Last um, year during COVID, I was working on a One Republic music video. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Ava Brothers. Oh, I love the Ava Brothers. Ava uh, Brothers, yep. Yeah, I know you've done a lot of high profile music video work. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've done a lot of other high profile commercial work. And then you've done a lot of narrative work. Some of it high profile, some of it not as high yeah, profile. It's a little bit more indie on that side. But how do you define success in that? I think just the fact that I'm doing what I love and I'm getting paid for it and I'm yeah. providing for my family, you know, and that one project is leading to more projects down the road. I think for any filmmaker, any even people that win Oscars, um, some of them even talk about how like an award is only as good as the, the job that it gets you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's just, if you're an Oscar winning anything, it's going to be a lot easier for you to get the next job that's going to help pay your bills and, you know, and, and do that. So it's all... I think working, continuous work in this industry is success for me. Um, and I've always, 
I think everybody, maybe it's just me, but I've always had kind of an imposter syndrome. Yeah. And no matter... Creative types often do. Yeah. yeah. No matter what I do or what project I work on, I feel like, oh, they're going to find out that I really wasn't that cool. And <laughs> it, the project, the, the work that I did on, it, did on it really isn't what they think it is. And right. so it's not as cool, but I'll just, you know, I'll spin it and make it sound as cool as possible because it'll get me the next job. You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, newsflash, you are cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you always, like every time I've worked with you, and I've worked with you multiple times, and heard from many other people who've worked with you multiple times, you're one of the most reliable, you come through, and you're really good at your job. Yeah, thank <laughs> really you. Good at I really it. appreciate that. Very talented and just, uh, just skilled. So you kind of take it a step at a time, a project at a time. Mm -hmm. Are there any stories or any artistic projects that are still like burning within you that you want to make someday? I shot a documentary 10 years ago, a feature-length documentary. What? The assembly edit's two and a half hours long. But it's still in the post-production? It's, it's, it's on, stuck in post? It's on a hard drive. Oh, that's, it's in a graveyard right now. Yeah. You need to dig that up. But there's baggage attached to it. Uh, and so it's kind of always like something I always want to bring up but then there's always like the baggage that keeps me mm -hmm. from doing it. So that would be one of the things, just finishing that project. Yeah, so it's not yeah. anything that I'm gonna be able to like take any time for uh, away from family or anything like that, because um, my wife would kill me. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those <laughs> things where I have to have enough money to be able to just throw money at it and get it finished sure. without me putting any more. <laughs> What's another 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> really? <though>. Right. <laughs> so I actually have somebody looking at it right now in, in possibly finishing it for me. What's it about? It's about the song We Shall Overcome. Um, and it's, they call it the anthem of the civil rights movement, African-American civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I ran into a guy when I was in LA. I, uh, I ran into a guy who said that his grandma wrote that song. Mm -hmm. And if you look it up, I don't know if it's changed now, but if you look it up, the owners of the song, the copyright owners of the song are four folk musicians. They're white guys. But the song comes from the black religious community. And so essentially the documentary is this guy claiming that his grandma wrote the song and it was her deathbed wish that somebody would do something with their music. So it's this guy's crusade now to go take on, it's like a David and Goliath thing, take mm -hmm. on the big music industry and get his grandma attribution or like get his grandma's name on the song as the person who wrote that song and all of the wow. obstacles that he runs into uh, along the way. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I, it's and it's I know, on a hard drive somewhere. I know it's I know it's a great documentary, and I, I just it just kills me that it hasn't been finished. Yeah, yet. and and very relevant right now too, yeah. especially well, always relevant, honestly. But really, especially now. Yeah. yeah, every year that goes by, and anything racial happens, or like music related, or civil rights, or anything, I'm like, I just wish that this was out there, you know? Yeah, to contribute to it. Yeah, but other than that. Um, I have a few things that aren't on paper yet that I would like to make. I really love short films. Yeah. I love that it's a short commitment, low risk, and you can do more than features like two years long, you know, feature films. And so I, I'm happy just making a lot more short films until somebody pays me to make a big feature film, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just keep exercising those skills and, you know, exercising those filmmaking muscles on short films. Yeah. That's fantastic. Bright future. <laughs> I hope so. What, what do you wish you had known when you first started out as a filmmaker slash artist? Um, kind of going into like, I feel like I have to know everything before I do it. I also felt like I needed permission to do anything. Mm. And one thing it was, um, I kind of learned very late in the game is that you don't need permission to make a film. I mean, obviously you need permits and stuff like that sometimes, but... Sometimes. Sometimes, <laughs> Depends but, how much you can get away with. <laughs> but there's so much of it that I felt like I needed somebody to give me permission to do it. You know what I mean? Whether it was a parent or whatever, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. or a spouse or something. It's like, like this Widow's Peak one isn't something that my mom would be. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, you should make that. You know what I mean? I mean, I still keep it PG and everything uh, because that's just, I think, who I am. I don't want to make like a hard R horror movie yeah. about cannibals. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, uh -huh. But I think there's just enough of me in it um, that... Uh, but that yeah, it's just. Um, it's you, but it's you. Like you decided, yeah. you gave yourself permission. Right, right. That was one where I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I made this really weird ex writing exercise of a script, and it's just sitting there. It's easy to make. You just go out into the woods with a few, you know, a few people for a couple of days, 
and it's all kind of built in production value. You don't really need to build any sets. You just bring people that are willing to volunteer their time mm -hmm. to act and shoot it, and I'll do the rest myself. You know, so you know. if you could tell one thing to, you know, the creative that you, the young creative that you were a decade mm -hmm. ago, mm -hmm. what would you, or two decades ago, what would you, what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them to maybe not wait so long, to experiment, to try. You know, yeah. I felt like I needed to know everything before I could try. Just make things. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, um, going along with that, like, I felt like nobody really would take me seriously until I had a certain amount of education or clout or something like that. So a lot of my ambition and drive has just been to have other people say that my work is good mm. and not mm. just say it myself. I always hated people that would call themselves a filmmaker or, like, you know, talk about big about themselves, and I know that they're just all talk. They don't really have anything to show for it. Yeah. That was always annoying to me. And so I'm like, if anybody's going to say I'm good, it's be, it's not going to be me. Mm -hmm. It's going to be somebody else, and so I'm going to... And that's know, when you know you've made it. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I, go, yeah. I would go always submit to, like, Addie's or uh, the Billie Eilish one got a Video Music Award uh, nomination by MTV, and I'm like, well, that was the moment I'm like... Oh, yeah, I you think went to I, the MTV Awards. I went to the MTV Music Awards. I'm like, I think maybe now I've kind of made it. But, yeah. But I still felt like an imposter. I'm like, oh, if they only knew what I actually did on this music video, they wouldn't be giving me this award, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So um, I would just say, yeah, just try. And film school is a great place to, to experiment and to make bad stuff. Yeah. Get all the bad, bad stuff. stuff out. Yeah. And don't be, don't be scared to do that. That's probably what I'd tell myself. Plus, one more advice. Plus, one more piece of advice that I learned is um, there's no one path. I'm very much like, I was, in, I was in Boy Scouts. They give you a checklist of yeah. merit badges you have to get. Structure that speaks to you. Yep, that's my structure, right? So I'm like, okay, well, how, what, where's my checklist for being, becoming a filmmaker? And I'm like, I couldn't find one. And I'm like, where, who's hiding this checklist? How do I, how do I take the... <laughs> who did this? <laughs> who decided this one? <laughs> who, where was the book? I can't find it in print anywhere. But like, <laughs> like... Where's the list of things that I have to do to become the next Steven Spielberg? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so the reason I chose the schools that I went to was based off of the filmmakers who went there. Mm. Uh, I found out, speaking of Steven Spielberg, I had... He didn't wanted, even go to school, did he? I thought he, he got he an honorary. Out. He dropped yeah. out, but he went to Cal State Long Beach. Mm. And then he dropped out from there. I'm like, good enough for me. <laughs> and if you'll he, finish it. If he, if he <laughs> went there and he made it big, you know, maybe there was a little, there was a little bit of like magic something mm. there. You do know? you still want to make it like that kind of big or going back to how you define success? I mean, because in some ways you feel like you've already made it. And in other ways, you you know, you still have more things ahead of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the sense that I'm being able to be self-sustaining in my career, that I'm not, it doesn't feel like I'm grasping for straws anymore. I'm, I'm having to turn down jobs as much as I wanted to take on all as many jobs as I can because any job could be the next Billie Eilish music video that I didn't know was going to be a thing at the time. You know, they're like, oh, this girl, she's kind of up and coming right now. She's got a music video. And uh, my friend was too busy to work on it, and so he handed it off to me. And it ended up being what it was, and I'm like, whoa, you know? Yeah, and huge then, sensation. Yeah. And that got me connected to the production company that then made um, other big music videos too. So it kind of got, I don't want, it's, I guess it's FOMO is what they call it nowadays. Mm -hmm. You don't want to say no to something that could have been that next big cool yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, so that's, that's success for me, is just being able to take on less so that I can enjoy the ride yeah. and not just overwork myself. Okay, all right, last question. Okay. Uh, what's something that's bringing value to your life from other artists, whether it could be music, it could be movies, book, whatever you're digging right now, what's something mm -hmm. that's making an impact? Well, I mean, they're the filmmakers that, I, that I've liked, you know, that I've always kind of looked up to in my career. Mm -hmm. Their work is the kind of stuff that makes me feel emotion. And so I'm like, I want to do what they're doing because that's the stuff that I like to see. Mm -hmm. And that's like Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, the Coen Brothers. Um, Terrence Malick is huge. Oh, Terrence Malick. Ugh, yeah. So good. Yeah, he's yeah. just like pure emotion uh, in his filmmaking. Especially, well, up to Tree of Life. I don't know about anything after yeah. Tree of Life. But Tree of Life is just like <laughs> his pinnacle, his like climax yeah, yeah, you know, incredible. of his life and his filmmaking career. Um, so in terms of like inspired by filmmakers, I think those are my biggest inspiration. Okay, I lied. One, one more question. Okay. It's the age-old question. Uh -huh. Where do you normally find inspiration? Hmm. 
I find inspiration from books, I think, re lately, from reading. Oh, you know what? No, uh, it's road trips. Really? Driving. I, I am never more focused than when I'm driving. And so whenever, and living in California and having family in Utah, during the first, like, seven years of my marriage, we would always be driving back and forth um, for holidays or whatever. And it would just be like, my mind is going a thousand miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about things from my life at the time, from things from my past, from like all of these things come, to, and then I grab onto something and, and my mind, it just feels like it's like lights yeah. up. You know? Do you have like a voice recorder or how do you? No, I just no? usually tell my wife, I'm like, hey honey, write this down for me. She's like. <laughs> write it down, scribe. And she doesn't, like, she doesn't like to sleep in the car, so that's okay, you know. Perfect. Yeah, Match so I'm like, one. I need you to write these things down for me because I can't. And I don't want to text and drive or whatever, you know. Of course, yeah. So. Uh, driving. I think most of my films, if not all of them, have been fleshed out while I've been driving. Cool. That That's not one I would have thought of. That's unexpected. I like yeah. that. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I guess that makes sense. It puts you kind of in a very passive state, but you're actively doing something. So you're mm -hmm. actively passive, if you will. <laughs> so your brain can go because your body's occupied. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise but, I would be distracted by some yeah. lots of things. Of course, that's day. always why you miss the exit. But <laughs> I always miss the exit. Every time. Every time, especially with people in the car. Never with. <laughs> distracted. Never by myself though. No, never by myself. That's the exit. Brian and I went on a few more tangents after all that, so we didn't get a chance to record a proper goodbye. But I hope you enjoyed his story as much as I did. You can keep up with Brian at centrifugalproductions.com and centrifugal underscore productions on Instagram. Brian posts a lot of cool behind the scenes VFX and other filmmaking stuff, so I'd recommend giving him a follow. To keep up with Artbreakers, follow us at Artbreakers Podcast on Instagram and check out the show notes at artbreakerspodcast.com. Episodes release weekly on Tuesday and there's so much more to come. In the words of comedian and cartoonist Dimitri Martin, Earth without art would just be eh. Thank you for tuning in to Artbreakers. Breakers.